great to be able to, to speak to you this morning, spend a few minutes sharing out of this series from Ephesians. Um, I have to say, when uh, Jim proposed this particular passage to me, uh, we read it, we were uh, further up in the mountains driving around, and I, I read it out loud to my wife, and I honestly, I kind of choked on the words a little bit. We realized at that moment that this was... Um, this was a passage that we would like to express to you as a congregation, the place that we've been for the last 15 or 16 months and a place that has become very dear to us. And so it is, uh, it is my great honor to speak to you this morning. What's your favorite musical? Uh, I like musicals from both generations, the, uh, the old classics. My favorite is still Fiddler on the Roof. I, I had the honor of playing Tevye in college, so I'm a little bit biased about that one. <laughs> but I like a lot of the new ones, too. Really crazy about Les Mis. Took my daughter to see uh, Hello, Dolly! a couple weeks ago. A lot of fun. But I know it's a loaded question. Because there's always a certain percentage of people in any given group who hate musicals. <laughs> there's all, they're always there. I've had these people, there's one regular. I've had these people in my life, all of my life. I had, I had friends in high school and college that would not come see me perform because they hated musicals so much. And by far the most common explanation for that is it's so unrealistic. Right? Because people don't just suddenly break out into song. <laughs> That's not the way that it works. And I always think, you know what you're missing about this? Is that that would be totally awesome! <laughs> I would give anything to live in a reality like that. That would be so cool. You know, if you're just thinking about something and then all of a sudden, oh! Just break out into song and the orchestra out of thin air. The orchestra strikes up, you know, there's, how fantastic would that be? And then the chorus comes out and joins you and you do a little dance routine that magically everybody knows. <laughs> I love that. If I had that kind of magic, we'd be singing and dancing right now. Break out the jazz hands and just go for it. As a matter of fact, no. <laughs> Reality is kind of overrated, really. You know, if if uh, if this is all there is, it's not enough. I'd like something more. I'd like something more spectacular. This is the way I've always felt about life, and it's, it's the way I've always felt about the church. I've never been a realist about the church. I, I've always been an idealist. I've always been something of a hopeless romantic about the church. I've always hoped that it would be greater than the sum of its parts. That, that its divinity would somehow leak out through the cracks. That's something akin, I think, to what Paul hopes in our Ephesian passage today. 
See, what's real about Ephesus, what's real about Ephesus is that it's a center of Roman power, a center of Roman commerce, it's a center of paganism. The, the members of the church there are largely Gentile. They don't have that history of biblical instruction that the Jewish church has had. And the reality of their situation is they have no business surviving, much less thriving. But they do anyway. They thrive anyway. It's better than reality. They're growing. They're facing the tide. They're even, as, as Jim shared with us a couple of weeks ago, they're, they're, they're threatening the status quo. You know, the pagans there are worried about the impact that this little Christian church is having. The Ephesian church was a very, very exciting place to be. Paul wants to make sure it stays that way. He looks back on the church in this letter some ten years after it's established. It's been roughly five years since he's been able to visit them in person. And he's just in this letter just filled with love and passion and hope. I think you're probably already picking up on that even though we're still in the first chapter. And in this passage today, Paul shares with them what his constant prayer for them is. His prayer for this church that he was so instrumental in planting. And we're going to read that prayer. Now as Jim pointed out last week, when Paul gets excited about something, his grammar kind of goes out the window. And he has these long run-on sentences. Now we're going to read from the NIV this morning, and the NIV kind of cleaned it up, threw some periods in there to sort of make sense of it. But in the spirit of the original, I'd like to read this whole passage that in in the original text is essentially one long sentence. And it starts in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starts with verse 15. It says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated seated Him at His right hands in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. There's so much here that we could easily get lost. But this passage is so rich, it's, it's worth taking the time to unpack it. But before we do that, let me give you this summary of what I believe Paul is saying to us. Don't miss the extraordinary in pursuit of the pretty good. Don't miss the extraordinary in the pursuit of the pretty good. Now, why would anyone do that? That's a very good question. 
Why do we choose the pretty good when the extraordinary is available? And maybe, maybe it's because it feels safer. You know, it's a bird in the hand instead of two in the bush or something like that. I don't know. But we tend to do it. We have to recall the trajectory that we've already seen for this church. So by the time the, 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 the John writes the Revelation, we'll be talking about a church that has lost its first love. A, a commentary we never want spoken about our congregations. They're doing all the right things. They're making all the right moves. They're demonstrating their faith and their endurance. But they're missing out on the extraordinary in service of something pretty good. And Paul's prayer is that the church would avoid this fate. And that's one of the things that makes his prayer so relevant for us today. It's prescriptive for us. And he starts out by giving us sort of this baseline for the church. He, he says he's thankful for their faith in the Lord and their love for all God's people. This is what he's thankful for because this is the baseline of the church. These are the things that all believers must share. It's what makes us the church. Jesus himself says the first and second commandment in order of importance. Love the Lord your God and love each other. Well, here it is. I'm thankful for you, constantly thankful for you, Paul says, because of your faith in the Lord and your love for the other believers. Disciples of Jesus at any time, at any place, anywhere around the world must share these two qualities. These are the things that we all share in common. But, If the church is going to be extraordinary, we have to reach beyond what we have in common, and we have to reach into the things that we have uncommon. And Paul points these out for us. He basically, there's basically three things in this prayer. The first one is an uncommon knowledge. Paul prays that we will have an uncommon knowledge. He says he's asking the Father to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Spirit of wisdom is a real common theme in Scripture, especially in Proverbs. And of course we know from Proverbs that wisdom is to be desired more than gold. But he says specifically, I want this wisdom and this revelation to help you to know him better. To know God better. To know the Son better. Guess what that is? Theology. Theology. Jim and I are both going to do our best to convince you that theology is not a dry, boring study. But it is this wonderful experience of trying to discover who God is. That's what Paul's praying for them. First and foremost is that you'll have this wisdom, this revelation that'll help you to know him better. Paul uh, rather famously said in another passage in Philippians 3, he says, but whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. 
You have to remember that Paul wasn't with the other 12. He didn't, he didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't there for Jesus' ministry. He wasn't there for Jesus' life. He didn't share in those experiences. And I think perhaps because of that, he's even more keen on this idea of coming to know who Jesus is. Because his introduction to him comes later. Perhaps this is one of the things that makes him such a great communicator for us. Because we didn't get to walk with Jesus. And so trying to discover who Jesus is, a lot of our discovery comes through Paul. So much wisdom he has to share with us. It's this desire, this profound desire to know him better that we need to cultivate as disciples of Jesus. And fortunately, it's not that difficult to do. Lisa and I got to see the movie Risen last week. Uh, good film. Really enjoyed it. This basically about a, a Roman officer who's, who's charged with the responsibility of investigating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, the Romans suspect that the body's been stolen, and so the, their objective is to find the stolen body. So interesting premise, interesting film, well worth seeing. But you know my favorite part of the whole film? There's this scene, and it comes this, this little piece of it comes directly from the Word. The apostles are gathered in this room, and then Jesus is there with them. And they're, they're excited, and they're, and they're just talking with Him, and they're touching His wounds, and they're, they're trying to trying to wrap their brain around what's happening, and then all of a sudden, he's not there anymore. And they're looking around. And somebody says, well, he said we'd see him in Galilee. And so they start gathering their stuff up, so let's go to Galilee! And I just, that was such a wonderful scene, because I think that's probably exactly how it happened. I think that's probably how it happened. There's no question in their mind. If he, if he mentioned Galilee and there's a chance that we might see him again, let's go. Whatever it takes, let's be there. And I think that's what happens to us when we begin to experience the presence of Jesus Christ in our life, is that we hunger for it. We yearn for it. If there's ever a chance, ever a chance that Jesus might show up, that's where we want to be. That's why all religions have this common appeal. All the religions around the world have this one common appeal of some kind of transcendence, some kind of opportunity to connect with God, to connect with the divine, the universe, however they want to define that. But we don't have a common religion because our God shows up. Our God shows up in a way that we can fully comprehend. He comes and He puts on flesh and He lives with us. We can know God because we can know Jesus because He walked among us. John says in John 1, he says, we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen Him. Once we've seen Him, we'll never get enough. It's one thing when we don't know what we're missing, right? 
But once we've seen the glory of Jesus, nothing else will do. Paul says, I pray that you will know him because once you know him, he will open your heart. He'll open the eyes of your heart. And you'll know something else. You will know an uncommon hope. Specifically, he says, I pray that that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. In other words, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and the hope to which we are called is the hope that whatever he has inherited, we will inherit. And most remarkably, on our account, Jesus has secured for us, reacquired for us, a home in the presence of God. If we go back to Philippians chapter 3, this time in verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I used to sing this as a teenager. I want to know Christ and the power of His rising. Share in His suffering, conform to His death. I don't think as a teenager I spent a lot of time thinking about sharing in his suffering and conforming to his death. <laughs> well, Paul speaks those words. Paul speaks those words because there is no part of knowing Jesus that's going to be left out. There's no part that we want to skip over. Paul basically makes no distinction between the hope of our salvation and theology. Now, I don't want to imply to you that there's an educational requirement for getting you into heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But as Paul looks at it, to know Jesus is to find your salvation. To know His life To know his death, to know his resurrection, is to actually participate in those things. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, the kingdom, the presence of God come near. Say, well, isn't the gospel about life after death? Well, yeah, it is. But understand this. Life, including eternal life, is a byproduct of being in God's presence. That's the big prize here. There is such a thing as eternal life outside of the presence of God. We call it hell. It is the presence of God that makes heaven, heaven. This is what you were built for. This is what your soul was made for. And this is what Jesus has already given you. The hope of your inheritance is that you're already in. That right now you can live in the presence of God. And that when this life is over, you can live in the presence of God. And in the presence of God is life. We could get into a long, lengthy, philosophical discussion about hell. 
We, we could talk about all the metaphors that we use, all the word pictures. We could even have that debate that some Christians have is whether or not hell exists. This, this is all I want you to understand leaving here this morning about hell. Hell is life outside the presence of God without any hope of that presence. That is what we stepped out of. That is what we're welcoming the rest of the world out of. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the first message that, that, that Jesus and his apostles preached to the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. Essentially, the presence of God, the place where God has dominion, is within reach. You could touch it. To touch the presence of God. This is the uncommon calling that the church has. To be such a people of God. To be such disciples of Jesus Christ. That you can encounter Him in and among us. Now, let me be clear about that. If we do everything right today... If you were warmly greeted as you came in, and if the coffee was hot and delicious, and the fellowship was welcoming, and the song service was beautiful, and the preacher managed to be reasonably well prepared, (laughs) all of that would be pretty good. But if you encounter the presence of Jesus Christ in this room, That will be extraordinary. That's why we do it. Not so you can see how good we are at our jobs. But for the hope that our eyes and our hearts will be open enough to recognize Jesus when He's in the room. Can you see why this wisdom, why this knowledge of Jesus is worth more than anything else? Paul's not finished. Paul says, I want you to know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, you're going to know this hope. And the other thing that you're going to know is power. Power. An uncommon power. Specifically, he says... His incomparably great power. The same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead. Can you imagine how important that message would have been for the church in Ephesus? They're basically standing against this tide of the Roman Empire. The weight on their shoulders is enormous. And for them to hear that the church is not powerless... No matter how small, no matter how much of a minority you are, the church is not powerless. It is filled with power. And not only filled with power, it's filled with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Real power. Francis Chan wrote this great children's book called The Big Red Tractor and the Little Village. And in the book... This people, this little village, 
their livelihood depends on the big red tractor. And every year at planting time, they all gather around the big red tractor that they adore and they, they worship. And some of them get in front of the big red tractor with a rope and some of them get behind the big red tractor and some of them are pulling the big red tractor and some of them are pushing the big red tractor and they could plow 20 or 30 feet a day this way. And they're so thankful to have the big red tractor in order to be able to do this. And that's the way things go on for a long time. And then eventually the farmer finds the owner's manual for the big red tractor and he starts reading it and he realizes there's something more. And he goes and he tells the village people, not those village people, <laughs> the village people. <laughs> he goes and he tells them, he says, he says, I, there's something more. And they don't want to believe it. Until one night, he goes out and he follows the instructions in the manual and he starts up the tractor and he plows the entire field in one night. And the villagers come out the next morning and they're just astounded and they're celebrating this fantastic thing that has happened. I think sometimes we do church like that. Sometimes we're struggling so much to make the church do all the things that we know it's supposed to do. And we have forgotten that the church comes with its own power plant. The church doesn't need us to tug on it or to push on it. The church is powered by divinity. Ah, it's a question really of what our source is. Where, where does our knowledge come from? Where does our hope come from? Where does our power come from? Ah, it's an election year. And every election year, I'm sorry to remind you, every election year I become kind of a politics and news junkie. You know, i got to log in every morning and see what people are saying and read all the commentaries and see what's going on. And it's pretty disturbing. But here's the thing. If nothing goes my way, as often happens... Or if everything goes my way and everyone that I think should be elected is elected. This is still not where my hope comes from. Because it doesn't take too many skills of observation to recognize that this is hopelessly and deeply broken. But let me let you in on another little secret. It's all hopelessly and deeply broken. Everything, everything that I am tempted to depend on is hopelessly and deeply broken. Except for Jesus. Except for that one thing. You know, if Jesus didn't have the knowledge for me, if he didn't have the hope for me, if he didn't have the power for me, he would still be the only place I could go. Like the like his own apostles said to him, you're the only one that has the words of life. Where else could we go? I feel that way a lot when I look at the world around me. Where else could I go? 
There's only one person that I can look to that is not already broken. I love the prophet Jeremiah. I've talked to you about Jeremiah before. He and I have a lot in common. Jeremiah is this prophet who who prophesies at a time when the kingdom, the Hebrew kingdom, is, is under God's judgment and they're about to be exiled. And, and he has this, this passage in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. I think this is so fascinating. In the midst of all of that, this is, this is what God says about why the people are about to be judged. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. See, settling for pretty good is not a new problem. It's been going on for many centuries. For some terrible reason, when given the choice between fresh, clean, cool spring water and still stagnant cistern water, we'll choose the cistern. We'll trade the extraordinary for the pretty good. We'll trade... The living water for a stagnant hole in the ground. And what's more? It leaks. It's broken. It can't even do the job that we've given it to do. Why? Is there something that God is willing to do for us that we could actually dream of doing better for ourselves? Paul says, I I want you to have this wisdom. I want you to have this revelation. I want your eyes to be open to see something that the rest of the world does not see. And a big part of that is this understanding, this reality that Jesus is more. He's more. Our culture is enamored with an image of Jesus of a basically a, a really nice guy. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's because a really nice guy doesn't challenge me. A really nice guy agrees with all of my political opinions. A really nice guy feels safe, perhaps. But the world loves this Jesus that's really nice. And I'll grant you this. Jesus is more loving and compassionate and graceful and forgiving than any human being you're ever going to meet. Jesus sets a standard for kindness that I can't even come close to. But Jesus is still more. See, Jesus is not only the kindest person in the room this morning, He's also the smartest. Yes, Jesus is not a rocket scientist, but he did invent physics. Jesus is not a brain surgeon, but he created your mind. There's no wisdom 
There's no knowledge, there's no strategy or plan that's going to surpass Jesus. There's no trivia answer that's going to surprise him. There's no question we're going to ask that he doesn't have the capacity to answer. Who among us is going to advise the creator of the universe? You know, I fail at this a lot. But I've lived and served long enough to recognize that I would just much rather join Jesus in whatever he's doing than to try to ask him to bless what I'm doing. Jesus is not only the smartest guy in the room, he's also the most powerful. Paul says it this way, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Head over everything, everything under his feet. Do you understand what this means? Think of the most intelligent human minds that you know. The wealthiest of human treasures, the most beautiful of the earth's wonders, the most majestic mountains, the deepest oceans, the most powerful governments, the latest technologies, the most brilliant strategies ever devised, all the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of every book and scroll and manuscript. And this is where Jesus rests his feet. This is no cut-rate Messiah that you serve. This is the one and only God whose immeasurable power was brought to bear to raise Christ from the dead and to express to you a love that is too wide and too long and too high and too deep for us to comprehend. That is the power at work among us. This is who you are, Paul says. This is who you are. In Christ, you are the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I love this little word play that Paul gives us. We serve the one who fills everything, and you are his fullness. Wow. What a privilege. You have everything you need in Christ, Paul says. Know him. Know him. Know the hope that you have already inherited through him. Know the incomparable power that is at work within and among you. And I would add these things, if I can be so bold. May your visions be the visions of a people with unlimited spiritual resources. May your dreams be the dreams of a people whose God is ever faithful. 
May the Lord and the Creator of the universe guide your path. May your footsteps cause the gates of hell to tremble. May your hearts break into song and dance at the most inappropriate moments. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your church, so thankful for this church. And I'm asking you, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Father, to give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know your Son better. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us and the richness of our glorious inheritance and your incomparably great power for us. And we lift these prayers in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.